Welcome. It's Wednesday, June 2nd, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and James White Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. I'm Russell Berman, Director of the Working Group. The Working Group publishes regular commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. You can subscribe to any and all of the Hoover podcasts, by the way, including The Grumpy Economist, John Cochran, The Libertarian with Victor Davis Hanson, The Pacific Century with Misha Oslin and John Yu, and Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Asaf Orion, a retired Israeli brigadier general and defense strategist. He's now a senior research fellow leading the Israel-China program at Israel's Institute for National Security Studies and the Liz and Moni Reuven International Fellow with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. His last serving position was as head of policy, strategy, and international relations in the Israel Defense Forces. General Orion has also contributed a formidable essay on Israeli grand strategy that we have published on the Hoover website. You can go to hoover.org, select research, and then choose the Middle East research team. You'll find the essay there. General, thank you for the essay and welcome to the Caravan Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We have a lot to cover. Uh, in your essay, you offer a sweeping view of Israeli strategy since the War of Independence in 1948, including national defense, foreign policy in the region and globally, as well as relations with the Palestinians. So we have a lot on our plate. But we just have to begin with the recent fighting between Israel and Hamas, not yet two weeks ago. So let's begin. How do you evaluate the military significance of this conflict? And are there implications in the region? What did this fighting mean for Hezbollah in Lebanon? Uh, well, uh, you know, um, there's a famously uh, mistaken quote of Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai about the French Revolution that it's uh, too soon to tell uh, its implications. But uh, it uh, surely... Uh, let's say, return the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the margin of international agenda uh, to somewhere closer to uh, center stage. And uh, we, we may need to wait and see, but uh, it may have emboldened and empowered Hamas in its efforts to overtake the Palestinian uh, system and leadership. It sharpened uh, Israel's governance uh, challenges and the challenges of uh, integrating uh, Arab society in Israel uh, into the rest of the society, it, it may generate a deal for uh, of a prisoner and uh, MIA uh, uh, body swap, uh, and also bring along the on its tail the reconstruction of uh, Gaza. But many challenges are still ahead because we need to try and uh, guarantee calm uh, for a long period of time. So that's the test of, uh, let's say, deterrence. Uh, Has Israel achieved the deterrence it uh, sought to achieve? Uh, We still need to prevent rearmament and uh, military rebuildup. 
we need to prevent further uh, wars. Uh, and the uh, worst of those uh, wars uh, may be or might be with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. So time will tell where all these uh, take us. Let me pick up this topic of rebuilding Gaza. There have been a lot of expressions of international interest in rebuilding Gaza, but is there really any way to funnel resources into Gaza and not having them end up in the hands of Hamas for military rebuildup? Can that be it, can that be checked? It's a it's a difficult um, you know puzzle of how to touch on all ends at the same time when you want to differentiate uh, terror from a populist and flow of uh, resources to legitimate uh, causes, at the same time preventing it, uh, preventing uh, those resources from terror and uh, military buildup. Uh, we, we had some attempts in the past. Uh, we had some uh, past mechanisms after uh, 2014 uh, conflict, and they didn't work so well. So I think we need to double down on concerted efforts uh, against uh, rearming and uh, arms uh, proliferation. It should start from the ports of origin in Iran or elsewhere. It should go along with the whole length of the logistic uh, routes, uh, including the crossing points from Egypt and Israel, and eventually inside Gaza itself, where you need inside inspection and uh, to prevent diversion of resources, materials, and so on uh, to the wrong uh, hands. Uh, this, is, this is not an easy uh, riddle to, to solve. Let's talk about the Israeli side of the consequences. Israel's been in a, been in a long-standing um, political limbo, um, multiple elections, difficulties to form a government. You're in the middle of that process right now. Has the fighting in Gaza impacted the political situation inside Israel? At uh, first, you know, at the beginning, the early days of the operation, it seems that the block uh, for change, seeking to uh, replace uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, has weakened. And uh, two weeks uh, were lost without real contacts in, in that uh, block. Um, uh, out, out of the uh, 28 days of, of uh, mandated uh, period to form a government. But uh, right after the operation, the uh, communications have uh, resumed. And uh, just today, we were expecting the de declaration or a statement that uh, a, a new government uh, uh, was uh, formed and it should be uh, um, you know, taking its vows or... Uh, um, next week or the week after. Uh, these, these are very tenuous uh, times in Israel. Uh, the relevant uh, people were, uh, were, uh, are now secured in the highest level or the second highest level uh, with uh, security detail uh, attached to the designated uh, prime minister and the designated uh, um, interior uh, minister, and um, it will be a very difficult coalition to drive, uh, ridden with uh, many contradictions, and it's now united by seeing Netanyahu as a kind of a, a danger to our national security and their will to avoid fifth elections. So it will be the first time in 12 years 
when Netanyahu is not a premier, he's not going to step down easily. Uh, and uh, he will uh, do his best to try and fracture, to uh, try and, and uh, bring some deserters and chip away from this uh, coalition. Well, we'll be watching these uh, contemporary developments closely, but I want to take time now to turn to some of the bigger issues you raise in your, your essay. You know that I'm speaking to you from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and as a faculty member, I'm interested in educational policy. In your essay, you argue that facing enemies intent on its destruction, Israel has had to develop an extraordinary defense potential with, and I'm going to quote you, a strong science and technology-based economy, which in turn is enabled by well-educated manpower. So the key issue here is well-educated. If I follow you, that means that national defense needs technological expertise, and that means science and technology education. So does national defense begin in the curriculum? I find that particularly intriguing as the U.S. finds itself in sharp competition with China in key technology fields. Could you flesh this out, please? How do technology education and national defense interface in Israel? And I'm wondering if there's something that the United States could learn from your solution. Uh, you know, uh, narrowly speaking, as, as I explain in, in my article, the simple math of war uh, shows that uh, Israel is widely outmatched by size of the population and the size of the army it can uh, field against uh, those of its uh, enemies. In other words, it, it can't rely on uh, symmetry of size, number, uh, numbers, and, and, uh, and uh, heft. Uh, and it needs to find offsets, asymmetrical offsets, to win and survive. Or in other words, that uh, we all uh, heard is the qualitative military edge. Uh, often, uh, qualitative uh, military edge, or QME, uh, is understood as technology-focused. Uh, and these technologies allow the few to defeat the many. And this is probably a way to look at the arm, armored forces and our air forces uh, in the victories of the 1967-1973 war. And uh, even today, when we speak about multi-dimensional warfare, networked, uh, intelligence-driven and uh, artificial intelligence-supported, uh, it, it's another aspect of those uh, technological uh, applications. And even the, the last uh, or the recent uh, conflict in Gaza brought these advantages to bear. Uh, naturally, employing or, or using operating advanced weapon systems and uh, surely their development uh, demands uh, highly technological uh, human capital. Israel has a unique uh, innovation e ecosystem combining the technological units of uh, the Israel Defense Forces, the industries and the academy. Uh, we have the best and the brightest of our youth uh, fast-tracking through their military service, uh, you know, at the forefront of, uh, of operational knowledge. It goes on to the industries. In turn, those are uh, uh, developing the next generation of uh, technological uh, system, combining technology and operational uh, knowledge. So high-level technological uh, education is a condition to an, uh, uh, an advanced defense enterprise. 
And Israel indeed has world-class uh, innovation and a very high academic level on technology, but also we suffer uh, deep uh, gaps um, you know, throughout the education system, even comparing to other OECD countries. Large parts of our society uh, do not study what we call core uh, studies of English, math, and so on, which will allow them to integrate into the modern uh, economy uh, labor market. And it will make Israel, uh, you know, a challenge to Israel to both uh, hold and sustain uh, an advanced or a first-class uh, world uh, defense enterprise with an economy, part of which is deteriorating to a third world uh, level. And there's a, another caveat I need to add, you know, as a student of uh, humanities. Ben-Gurion uh, said that our existence is uh, reliant on our power, but also on our justice or our uh, righteousness. And uh, defense and security is above all about people. Uh, their unity, their conviction, their values, and their commitment to jointly work together for, for a common uh, cause. So Israel uh, will not be able to sustain its future or to ensure its future if its uh, politics continues to be so divisive, uh, inciting, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, thriving on, uh, on uh, strife. And if its education system does not catch up um, educating or graduating uh, educated uh, uh, citizens sharing a joint vision and the commitment to implement it uh, alongside the uh, technological uh, tools and others uh, needed to do so. It's very interesting. Uh, some of this surely has a distinctively Israeli character but some of it um, is uh, reminiscent of problems that other contemporary societies face. Uh, uh, fragmentation into identity communities rather than a commitment to a cohesive national narrative. But um, let, me, let me turn to a different historical question. In your, um, in your essay, uh, you give a summary account of transformations of the wars that Israel has faced. Uh, There's a historical overview from the old-fashioned, so to speak, tank wars then the guerrilla wars and the intifada, and now what we just saw was a war of rockets and missiles uh, uh, and tunnels, war in the air and below the ground. Uh, so war has changed. Uh, what are the implications for strategy and for society? Yeah, militarily, Israel is uh, uh, facing for years now a full spectrum of threats. In Hebrew, it even uh, rhymes, Nasakin Adagarin, you know, from the dagger to the nuclear, from sub-conventional to non-conventional, from individual terror through uh, ter armies of terror, and uh, all the way to enemy countries, uh, which are uh, regional powers. So we have the full scale from conventional uh, industrial uh, war problems uh, to the war amongst the people, uh, as, as it's being coined. Uh, this calls for a very wide spectrum of capabilities from individual security in the streets of Israel uh, through border security, through uh, uh, contending with neighbors' uh, threats, and uh, all the way to being able to operate more than a thousand kilometers uh, from home and in the borderless uh, cyber domain. 
the IDF ultimate uh, test, I would say, like any uh, uh, army of, or military of uh, demo demo democracy, is to protect Israel and its people, to be ready uh, for war and to win it if, 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 if it comes. And at the same time, uh, paradoxically, Israel and the IDF uh, seek uh, to avoid wars uh, as much as possible for as long as possible. And uh, this is uh, when we came up with this concept of the campaign between wars, trying to disrupt enemy uh, efforts and to, uh, uh, to degrade its uh, threats to Israel, to deter it from war. And this is by uh, taking early uh, limited uh, risk now uh, instead of uh, uh, a heavier uh, risk uh, later. So uh, if we want it or not, every uh, uh, several years we have an, a, a war or, or a conflict on our hands, uh, either by enemy decision or by miscalculation and uh, un un unintended uh, escalation. In these wars, uh, Israel is finding it, itself in a unique situation comparing to other uh, democracies since World War II, it's populous and it's uh, the whole country is under enemy fire. And another uh, challenge uh, known by every other uh, uh, Western uh, military fighting in the Middle East since uh, 1979 is that the enemy chose the battlefield, uh, deploying its uh, military forces and assets at the heart of populated areas and uh, urban spaces. So uh, they are seeking to dissuade Israel or the US or others from attacking it or, or, or them the, from uh, attacking uh, enemy forces to uh, cause um, losses, fatalities, casualties among civilians, their own civilians and collateral damage uh, while uh, Israel and the US or other uh, Western countries are striking legitimate military targets. And so to uh, evoke a massive public critique and criticism against uh, Israel among uh, public uh, uh, publics throughout the world and uh, especially in the West. So it's an intentional abuse of the rules of or the laws of armed conflict, abusing the principle of uh, discrimination uh, among combatants and non-combatants. It, uh, it is uh, vi violating uh, human rights because it puts uh, civilians at harm's way. And uh, Israel thus uh, finds itself in this new transformed battlefield and needing to defend or protect itself in all dimensions, uh, but mostly against rocket fire. We need to uh, expose and uh, find out the enemy uh, military assets embedded inside um, civilian uh, environment and in secrecy. We need to strike them in uh, a precise uh, way. We need at the same time to try to mitigate collateral damage and uh, losses among uh, civilians, uh, which the enemy seeks to increase. Uh, and we are at the same time uh, uh, making an effort to win hearts and minds and that's an uphill struggle, and we know it, because we need to try to preserve legitimacy and our relations in a very tough conditions. And many times we're singled out and, and held uh, accountable for things that uh, others uh, do not.
So the ultimate uh, test is actually long-term and mostly uh, in the perceptual uh, level. Um, does Israel succeed over time uh, to deter its enemies from attacking it militarily? And again, over time, persuades them to choose peace relations at the political, strategic, diplomatic level. Okay, what you just described fits like a glove for the conflict recently with Gaza. And I suppose conceptually it would fit for Hezbollah were it to come to a, a war there. Both of those forces, Hamas and Hezbollah, are effectively proxies of Iran, um, Israel, arguably Israel's most uh, dangerous enemy. And Iran also works on nuclear technology, as we know with regard to the negotiations going on right now in Vienna. Do you, do you have thoughts on the JCPOA and the possible outcomes? Well, un, unlike the other sig the, the signatories on, uh, of the JCPOA, Israel is not a signatory. Um, for Israel, an Iranian nuclear weapon is potentially an existential threat. Uh, while others uh, probably see it as a, as a severe concern, uh, for us it's a, a potential uh, existential uh, threat. Now, Iran uh, advancing on the nuclear path is actually um, accelerating a regional nuclear arms race across the, across the Middle East. And that's a, a clear... Uh, and uh, almost immediate uh, danger to world uh, peace. Uh, Saudi Arabia already declared it won't stay behind uh, should Iran become nuclear. And it should be assumed for others uh, in the region like Turkey, Egypt, and maybe others. And this is uh, why it is uh, so critical to prevent Iran from reaching nuclear uh, weapons and to decrease as much as possible the risk that Iran uh, may decide and go nuclear in a short period of time, shorter than the time needed to stop it going there. So when you look at the JCPOA, it's a bit like the Pharaoh's dream. It has a good beginning and a bad end because after sunset, it will uh, allow Iran to establish itself in what we call the threshold, from which it could uh, uh, relatively quickly uh, reach uh, weapons, even uh, though violating the JCPOA at that time. Now, it's very uh, clear in addition that Iran is uh, having uh, undeclared uh, sites and illicit activities and unreported activities, which the IAEA uh, finds it difficult to monitor and we just need to uh, hear what they've been saying recently about things they can't account for and things that Iran does not explain yet. And uh, in the reaction to uh, the U.S. withdrawal from JCPOA, Iran accumulated a lot of material equipment and know-how. And not all of it, uh, especially know-how, is reversible, uh, even if we assume uh, some rollback uh, by going back to the JCPOA. Now, Israel is not a party to the uh, talks, and its best way to influence the talks is uh, through an intimate dialogue with the U.S., while recognizing the differences between us in positions and in threat perceptions. 
so we need to keep engaged on that and in parallel we need to develop together with the us uh, future options and alternative uh, uh, should should the jcpoa uh, crash or iran decides to uh, to go uh, uh, you know on its own uh, way to the weapons and israel also need to develop its own independent options as a last resort and uh, you know in in uh, accordance with with this uh, being a potentially an existential threat so the jcpoa was a is a legacy of the obama administration to which the biden administration says it wants to return uh, in between was president trump and one of his signature accomplishments was the abraham accords an attempt to expand normalization of relations between israel and some arab countries do you think those accords will hold? Are they significant? Have they changed the landscape at all or not much? Uh, these are very dramatic, uh, uh, I, would, uh, I would say, advances, um, surpassing obstacles and old paradigms that uh, have uh, stood in the way of uh, progress. Uh, it's not a smooth uh, you know, walk in the park. Uh, co um, active conflicts like Gaza, are uh, uh, temporary challenges, but I don't think they change the basic balance of interest which uh, brought uh, the signatories of uh, the Abraham Accords to decide to normalize with Israel. Uh, there's a huge potential for recognition uh, of Israel and diplomatic ties with it, including people to people to uh, advance stability and peace across the region. That is, of course, as long as you see them a complementary element and not a replacement to uh, ordinating or to arranging our relations with the Palestinians. Uh, the role of Egypt and Qatar uh, in, in the last uh, conflict and in general uh, shows the potential. You can see additional potentials by uh, integrating Jordan in arrangements in uh, Temple Mount, uh, and uh, this way also displacing Muslim brothers and uh, Hamas from there to expand the role of the UAE in uh, advancing the message of uh, inter-religion uh, uh, tolerance and to integrate uh, other Gulf uh, countries in stabilizing the uh, Palestinian system and reconstruction of Gaza. So at, on, on the long term, I believe, uh, this uh, will prevail and uh, more progress will be made. But you can't uh, rush uh, art, including the art of peace. Uh, General, you just mentioned the Palestinians. This is a, a topic that Israel can't escape. It's certainly prominent in the perception of Israel in the international opinion. Is there an Israeli grand strategy to reach a stable solution? Or is this a problem that will only be managed uh, rather than solved? As, as it seemed, uh, uh, the Netanyahu government's uh, grand strategy uh, about the Palestinians was to manage the conflict, to marginalize it on the international agenda, to, deep, to deepen the divide, uh, the, the organic divide within the Palestinian system between West Bank and the Gaza Strip between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas uh, to uh, calm down the Strip, 
while uh, accepting in de facto uh, the governance of uh, Hamas and its military buildup. It was seeking to weaken the Palestinian Authority while having a, a useful and fruitful uh, security coordination. Uh, it, it was seeking to, uh, let's say, uh, promote uh, facts on the ground uh, to the edge or to the threshold of annexation. And it was seeking to uh, reach normalization with the region as a replacement uh, or instead of uh, reaching some arrangement with the Palestinians. Now, the last Gaza conflict greatly challenged most of these uh, elements of, of Netanyahu's uh, strategy. And uh, we may be now at the end of the period or, or the era of Netanyahu, but uh, if, if the incoming uh, government will be indeed sworn, uh, it is very far from unity of opinion on this and on many other issues. And uh, so it's, I think, sound to assume it will continue to manage the conflict uh, rather than seek to uh, impose or to shape it in a clear way. Now, we need to also recognize that the uh, years of Abbas uh, rules are at, uh, reaching their dusk or are already in twilight and there are no conditions uh, now to uh, reach an agreement on a permanent uh, agreement or arrangement. Uh, and thus it is, uh, I think, uh, correct or wise to draw some principles uh, for strategy uh, uh, in the future. Uh, Israel in this uh, principles uh, needs to uh, guarantee its future as a Jewish and democratic state, as a just and uh, safe uh, state. It needs to seek a Jewish majority in, within recognized borders alongside a peaceful uh, Palestinian entity, self-ruling, and that means we need a reliable, credible, stable uh, Palestinian uh, partner as a condition for success. Hamas is a bitter enemy. I think we need to acknowledge it is seriously committed to destroy Israel and to replace it. And that uh, what uh, uh, the liberation of Palestine means for Hamas. We need to uh, collectively prevent uh, Hamas uh, overtaking Palestinian leadership in the West Bank. And at the long term, we need to seek replacing Hamas in, in Gaza by a pragmatic uh, and moderate Palestinian actor, which is now not to be seen. And this would be uh, a partner for a peaceful coexistence. If we can't reach uh, an agreement on permanent arrangement, we need to preserve conditions to achieve it in the future and even to uh, advance and progress uh, those conditions. Israel has every interest to encourage uh, socio-economic stability, uh, which brings uh, security stability with the rule of law and good governance in the Palestinian system as part of its own uh, national security to Israel it, uh, itself. Uh, in parallel, we need to isolate the Palestinian system from the malign influence on, of Iran on the one hand and uh, Islamist uh, radicalism Muslim Brother supporters and jihadists uh, from on, on the other hand. And we must uh, do it uh, with a, a large support of the uh, regional peace partner, 
and with uh, uh, international uh, aid and, and support. Thank you. Uh, General, one final question, and I'd like you to um, sort of zoom out of the region and think globally for a moment. Israel is a very small country geographically, but the world is now characterized by a renewed great power competition with the United States facing China. I know you study China, um, as well as Russia, not quite a great power, but nonetheless a power that has returned to play a role in the, in the Middle East more broadly. How does Israel, how does Israeli strategy work with Russia, China in this current era of competition? You know, uh, uh, a diplomatic uh, colleague from a small Asian nation uh, told me once that when the elephants either fight or make love, the grass uh, beneath them is, is trodden. And uh, the great power competition is clearly above Israel's uh, pay grade. I think we, we need to, to uh, uh, timidly acknowledge our place under the sun. Uh, Israel, I think, clearly understands and knows very well who is its strategic, irreplaceable, great ally, who is an important uh, trade partner, and who is uh, a powerful uh, military neighbor. And uh, we just need to see what the uh, great powers uh, did during the Gaza conflict to understand where everybody uh, sits and stands. So in according uh, to that recognition, Israel uh, is, is aspiring to uh, uh, advance and develop its uh, relations with the United States, adapting them you know, in the transition from the, great, from the global war on terror uh, era, which is Middle Eastern focused, to the age of great power competition, which geographically uh, focuses on the Indo-Pacific and thematically uh, focuses on technology and innovation. So we, uh, we I think, need to uh, seek uh, a strategic uh, alliance of innovation and uh, technology as a defining theme to our relations uh, with the U.S. at that time. In parallel, uh, we would like to uh, promote our trade and economy relations with China in non-problematic uh, areas, like uh, many others do, including the United States. And with Russia, we need to cautiously deconflict and as much as possible uh, to minimize uh, risk in uh, Syria. So I, I think that uh, Israel uh, knows very well uh, its place uh, under the sun and among the great powers and uh, who our uh, real friends are, who our partners are, and who our uh, uh, neighbors, armed neighbors, uh, at least since 2015, uh, are. General, thank you for the conversation. This has been highly informative. Let me recommend your essay to our listeners. Listeners, again, can find it at hoover.org. Go to research and then the Middle East team. Listeners can also follow Hoover's working group on the Middle East at www.hoover.org caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at hooverinst, I-N-S-T. Please return to listen to our future discussions of the Caravan podcast later this month when my Caravan colleague Cole Bunzel will speak with a guest. 
I'll be back in about a month, and I hope you'll be listening in. Goodbye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.